Welcome to the Evocative Exchange, where we meet with go-getters who have that X factor, a way of meeting today's challenges with bold and evocative solutions. We'll share what keeps these experts thinking, thriving, and feeling inspired in design, entrepreneurial life, healthcare marketing, and beyond. Today on the Evocative Exchange, we welcome Dave Chen, a retired pharmaceutical executive with over 30 years in top-tier organizations such as Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Merck. His marketing expertise includes multiple new product launches, including Keytruda. Looking back from his vast experience, Dave shares a frank look at how adding value to an organization is only one factor in career trajectory that's in the control of the employee. And he's here to tell us more about his professional path, how culture impacts fulfillment, and being true to yourself as a professional. Welcome to the exchange, Dave. Thanks, Donna. I really appreciate being on today. And I really appreciate you coming. I mean, after retiring from not one, but two top tier pharmaceutical companies, can, can you give us some background on that uh, career history? Sure. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I didn't come to pharmaceuticals until really midway through my career. I started out um, in my career outside of healthcare, had a couple different positions. Uh, I had 10 years then in medical device, which is my first uh, healthcare um, view. And then I worked, as you stated, for two large pharmaceutical companies over a period of 22, 23 years. So I, I just wonder, you know, coming from outside of healthcare, do you think that gave you an advantage in um, working with pharmaceutical marketing? That's a great question, Donna. You know, it was very interesting for me, um, again, starting my career in marketing, but outside of healthcare, where I really learned how to assess the needs of the customer in ways that pharmaceutical companies don't necessarily do. So for instance, in medical devices, we would work with inventors who were trying to address an unmet need and had actually invented something, usually for a family member. Um, and we went out and we spoke with those people, our engineers and marketing people went out and spoke with the people. We talked with the patients uh, about their unmet need. And then we came back in-house and designed and worked on creating something new that had never been seen before, got patents on those medical devices, manufactured those and brought those out to market. So that's interestingly something that you don't get a chance to do in pharmaceuticals. But what it did is it really gave me a really important supreme focus on what the customer unmet need was and trying to get insights from the customer actually by very often being in their homes and watching them interact with, uh, with their daily needs. That sounds like an incredible experience. And I agree, it's it's unusual in terms of, of being in the marketing seat. So as someone who's been in two top tier companies, if you had to take out of all of your amazing experiences, what would you say is the most memorable achievement of your career? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of highlights that um, I'm happy to have been involved in and really I have a lot of gratitude uh, having had the opportunity to be involved. You know, being on 
a team that really knows how to work together, I think is um, really one of the most memorable achievements. I mean, you can certainly talk about achievements within the scope of what you're able to introduce or bring to market or have success within the marketplace. But that all stemmed from the team experiences I was able to have. But certainly when you talk about the individual products that I've been associated with, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to be involved with the first indication launches of two very innovative immuno-oncology drugs uh, with BMS, Bristol-Myers Squibb, it was Yervoy, and with uh, Merck, it was with Keytruda. Again, the first indication launches where you're going from nothing to something and you're trying to make it happen for the first time in the marketplace. Well, and uh, you know, I hope that we'll talk a little bit more in detail about those as it as it presents an opportunity during our conversation. Before we do that, I I feel like people who are looking at healthcare as a career option are hearing some of the things you're saying. Is is this ability to help others what makes it so attractive to work in pharmaceuticals? It always has been for me, and I know for all the people that I've worked with on all the different teams in pharmaceuticals, we really had the point of view that we were doing this work, this job to come in every day and work 10 or 12 hours a day to help patients. And that's something, especially in the pharmaceutical um, world, I don't think that the people that work in those industries really get enough credit for. You know, there's there's been a lot of bad press and people talk about um, generally, you know, the big bad pharmaceutical companies and how people are trying to take advantage of, of the poor consumer and patients. But, you know, I never saw that in my you know, over 20 years of working for pharmaceutical companies, we talked about this, Donna. We talked about how important it was to do the right thing for the patient and to make sure we understood what the patients needed. Uh, certainly, we were selling to doctors, but we always needed to understand what the patients needed first. So that was very fulfilling and really made us feel good inside, both individually and as a team, to know that what we were doing was going to help uh, in some cases, mankind, but it really starts with one patient at a time. Well, absolutely agree on that. And, you know, it sounds like when you talk about having that trust in the team and also that you sit and you actually talk about these issues, to me, that's cultural, right? And so what role do you feel culture plays in how any single employee would experience job fulfillment in their role? That's a really good question, Donna, because culture does play such an important part. And you can really look at it on a couple different levels. That's that's the way I, I like to do it. So when you first come into an organization, you know, you want to get to know the organization and you try to understand what the existing culture is. And certainly uh, it's important to fit in in some ways, but it's also great to have diversity within uh, an organization. But there's really two types of culture that I found. One is the cultural aspects of the organization itself and how that may be evolving because it always evolves and swings, sometimes like a pendulum from one side to another, depending on senior leadership. But there's also the culture that you bring along with yourself. And a lot of that is um, you know, who you are and how you've become who you are and how important it is for you to remain 
um, the person that you are within this, what might be a, a different or diverse culture of the organization. So it starts at the top, um, right. but really ends with you. Well, I think you've got a great perspective, you know, considering the years of service. Can, can we start with leadership? How do changes in leadership impact the culture of an organization? That can have a really deep impact on an organization. As I just mentioned, there sometimes can be pendulum swings associated with the cultural aspects of a company. You know, one of the companies I worked with started out um, very people friendly. It was the kind of organization where the president of the company would go to the lunchroom every day and greet people by their first name and really be friendly and honestly, you know, um, really enjoyed being with people. You know, you'd see him out in the community and uh, he would always uh, be very gracious and happy to engage in conversation. And that culture, you know, really created a great team spirit. But as new leadership came on board, as it always does, there was a big swing in leadership to the opposite direction where it was all about business and it was all about performance and it was all about telling your boss and your boss's boss what they wanted to hear. So that was interesting to see over the period of a couple of years how the culture swung in a different direction and really made people think twice about how they were supposed to be responding and interacting within that culture. Wow. I mean, it makes me wonder how um, employees who are loyal, right, um, they, they kind of go along with that flow. Does that engender reciprocal treatment in the workplace? So if I, you know, go along with this, then I'll be protected? <laughs> you know, um, the reciprocity, I think, again, can occur on two levels. Uh, you know, when you're working in a organization, you're on a team and you have your boss and your boss's boss and your teammates. And I think being loyal within that particular um, environment can be so important for team building and building trust. Um, and you can see that reflected back from the team and from your, your immediate, you know, one over and two over superiors. But there's also um, what can happen as we go at higher levels in the organization, where sometimes, and it's not unusual, but sometimes it seems senior leadership doesn't really care about any of that. Um, and even the fact that you may have been loyal in an organization for years or maybe even decades um, doesn't hit the mark with senior leadership if they're of the culture that doesn't value um, that particular experience. So, you know, based on your experiences, do you have any advice for people that, you know, are in these situations where, you know, they love what they're doing, and then, as you say, maybe things shift? So how could they remain true to themselves and, and their integrity? That's a really important question to not only respond to as you're going through it, but to think about in advance. So, I think one thing that you can always count on is that organizations will change. And as they change, they may have a senior leadership that is similar in type and culture and attitude and respect to um, what you've seen in the past. But very often, um, the reasons the leadership change occurred was because the organization needed to um, or perceived that it needed to have some sort of change. So uh, my first rule was always be true to yourself. I mean, 
it's a way for you to maintain your integrity across your career. So, you know, there were moments in my career where um, the culture was turning into something that was not favorable to me. And I had asked myself the question, Dave, are you willing to change to meet the culture? Or do you need to do something different in your career to remain true to yourself? And I always try to remain true to myself, you know, and that's not easy to do, Donna. Sometimes it means that you have to leave the job you're in and go to another area of the company. Sometimes it means you need to leave the company itself and maybe even move across the country to do what's right for you and your family. But to be true to yourself always allows you to look back and say, you know what, I did the right thing and I did the right thing for the right reason, which is just so important as now I look back on my career and I think about those pivotal moments where I had to make those types of choices. And I think I, I made the ones that were most favorable um, to my overall career. I think there's two things that you just said, Dave. Um, one is expect change. And I believe that that is a great um, way to prepare oneself for whatever might happen along the continuum of a long career trajectory, right? You know, tens of years. And, um, and I think the other thing is you said, think about it in advance. And so I want to dig into that a little bit. Like what can people do, um, you know, to prepare themselves to expect change and have to make career choices? Well, I think first of all, um, to be insightful into what's happening and to be honest with yourself and, um, hopefully have discussions with other team members, et cetera, um, to understand exactly what is happening. Sometimes changes are brought about and, you know, it's, it's difficult for an organization, especially if they need to change gears and turn quickly. And sometimes people overreact, right? So preparing in advance includes being able to understand that there can be shifts and you should expect shifts um, but the shifts themselves, you have to look at to see whether or not, at least in your perspective, it's going to be a long-term shift. So for instance, if, it, if new leadership, I'm just making this up, if new leadership says, okay, we're going to go from a 45-hour work week to a 65-hour work week, and everybody just better be in on that. Ouch. You know, that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that may be something that you might be able to, you know, to do for... Um, a month or two months, but you have to ask yourself what's right for you, what's right for your family, if that was going to continue, you know, ad infinitum for a period of years, and whether or not that really is in the best health of you, your team, and the organization as a whole. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the um, a career in healthcare marketing and in, in pharmaceuticals and, and other uh, life sciences types industries. It, it it can be uh, it can it can have you go across the country as you said there are there are organizations that are global so you could be going from one organization to another as you did with the you know BMS and Merck um, what do you think people um, really need to focus on in terms of preparing themselves like marketability wise like. How do you make sure that if something unforeseen does happen, that you're ready to present yourself for that next role? Sure. Uh, well, there's a couple things that I can think of. Uh, first of all, 
for yourself, you need to make sure that you're always putting yourself on the edge of your comfort zone, right? So um, what typically can happen is that, you know, you're in a position, you come in, you really don't know much about it, you learn it, and then you become really good at it, right? And so then you become the resident expert, you know, and the the source that people come to within the company. And that feels that feels pretty good. But if you're not challenging yourself to learn new things, to see new ways, you know, to maybe go from a, um, a U.S. market position to a global position or to um, really challenge yourself outside your, your particular area of expertise, then what happens is you can become somewhat stale, right? So new skill sets, even within a given position, are so important. So look for those opportunities, you know. If you've got a great boss, your boss will look for those opportunities and mention them to you. And even if it, you know, here's what I learned. If it makes you feel uncomfortable, then turn towards it, right? A lot of people, <laughs> right. a lot of people, does <laughs> that, that ring familiar? You know, a lot of people, I think, turn away from it. You know, it's scary, right? It's not always sure. easy to, to think about, you know, fresh new space to sculpt fog as I had uh one great boss say once, but that can be so important and rewarding in your career. So that's looking inwards, but looking externally, I think I learned um, throughout my different experiences that I really had not been necessarily looking externally enough to have a network, to understand how I might be able to move forward if I did decide that I needed to make a change or if a company decided that they needed to make a change in it regard exactly, to <laughs> which happens, right? It's happened right. to me several times over the course of my career and you're never quite ready for it, but there are things you can do to prepare for it. Exactly. And I think that's why uh, people are hesitant to sort of jump into the frying pan because they want to be considered successful and promotable. And, you know, when you take a risk, there's always a risk that it's not going to work out that well. And I feel like that's really prevalent in healthcare marketing. And with all the insights that you've gained over the years, I would love to get a little bit more detail. Um, starting with, I said we'd get back to this, right? What's it like to work on a new drug that could extend and or save patient lives? Well, for me, and again, I'm very fortunate and I have a lot of gratitude associated with the successes the products I worked on have had. It's, it's the greatest feeling you can have in your career. I mean, when you're dedicating yourself to try to help patients, you're never quite sure whether or not, especially if it's a new drug being launched for the first time with its first indication, you're never sure what's going to happen, right? Um, you know, when you have an existing drug that's very, um, that's been very successful, you, you pretty much know that it's going to continue to be successful if the right things are done. But there's so much risk and un, unknown associated with um, working on a new drug where the first script hasn't been written yet. You know, you get the data and, you know, hopefully you've, you've done the insight, understanding and recognition at the patient and the healthcare practitioner level but you really are not sure what can happen. And so that's a risk. And it's, it's again, an uncomfortable situation for a new drug. Um, you know, I can tell you, even with the launch of Keytruda, which has been so successful, at the time of launch of Keytruda, there were a lot of people that um, um, weren't sure what was gonna happen. And we would have never expected the type of success we had, but you have to have faith 
in what you're doing. You know, you have to expect success. Um, that's got to be your your mantra moving forward. You can't say, what if this doesn't happen? You have to say, what can we do to make this happen? And how can we be true to the patients and to the um, to the stakeholders involved with making sure that there is success for the patients? Exactly. High risk, high reward. Hopefully, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, there are so many stakeholders um, in the healthcare community, right? So obviously we've got the patient, but who else do you consider to be the customer? Well, one thing I learned that was so interesting for me and really formed the basis of my global experience was that you have external customers and, and especially in pharmaceutical companies, you're pretty good at um, being able to look at, you know, people on the payer level, on the scientific level, on the thought leader level, healthcare practitioners include doctors and nurses and, you know, um, all the allied HCPs. But in the global position, which is so different from a U.S.-based position, you find that so much of what you do each and every day is to attract and retain your internal customers. You know, the people, when you're in a global marketing role at a headquarters position, the people you need to chiefly influence are the peoples in the individual markets that you're going to serve. You know, and if you're going into a launch mode, you have to make sure that the individual regions across the world understand the value proposition associated with the new drug, what it can mean for patients in their countries, and to make sure that those regions are able to tell one story to make sure that the individual markets in a region all have the same story, understand are all, you know, rowing in the same direction since you're all in the same boat. And I think that ties in nicely with what you mentioned earlier about people needing to expand their skill sets and all the different places marketing professionals can go in, in terms of their career. Um, getting back to, you know, how do you define who the customer is? Do you see caregivers as part of the continuum of, of healthcare customers? Like, how would they fit in? Well, certainly. Um... In the world of oncology, caregivers can be so important and are an important point of influence, which a lot of pharmaceutical companies tend to not focus on, especially at the time of launch. Um, but what I've seen across you know, my oncology experience is that in many cases, when you're launching uh, a drug, there are you know, the efficacy, that's the reason you're launching a drug because it works better than something else that was out there but there's also the safety aspects. Now, what's very interesting and what we found time and time again in oncology was that um, patients, especially when they were going to be put on a drug that could potentially save their life, um, patients were so focused on getting that drug that they would sometimes not reveal to their doctors or their nurses any of the side effects that they were experiencing. And it's really, really important in, during a course of uh, therapy that the physician understands exactly what's happening in, in, to the patient so they can remedy any potential future problems or really help make that um, patient have greater success. And so the caregiver's role is so important because we would 
go out to make, try to make sure we communicate with caregivers about side effect profiles and the importance of if the patient wasn't reporting that to the doctor, then you report it to the doctor um, because it's all in the patient's best interest. Well, without a doubt. I mean, especially as you said, in the case of oncology, when the patient may be moving into a stage where, you know, they're not really going to be that communicative or they're not just, they're not thinking as clearly as they would need to, to articulate what's going on. But as you say, the person who's standing next to them holding their hand sees everything in spades. So that's a really poignant part of the job for sure. I wonder, um, if we were to go to sort of the brighter side, the lighter side, what, what do you think is would surprise marketing, um, healthcare marketers about a success that you had in a launch? Wow. You know, I was surprised so many times during, <laughs> during my experiences. Good surprises, um, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, hopefully this isn't too much of a surprise for anyone, but I always really, really tried to make sure I was looking at contingencies, right? So, of course, that right. makes sense, right? Everybody would agree with that. But I came to learn to ask myself and ask the team questions, what if this crazy thing happened, right? <laughs> what if this crazy thing happened? You know, what if the FDA came to us and changed, um, you know, the indication for the drug we're getting ready to launch for two years? Right. What if that happened? What if that happened within a month of the time you were going to train your field sales force? What would you oh, do? Goodness. Right? What would you do? Um, what would you do if you found out and did a lot of research with doctors and they told you? You know, the top tier doctors told you one thing, but that ended up being completely different from what uh, the general population of doctors needed to know. What would what would you do? Wow. What would you do yeah. if if a region of the world and their perspective on how a drug should be sold to healthcare practitioners was 180 degrees different from um, what doctors on the other side of the world were thinking? Right. So, you know. I guess I surprised myself by, um, first of all, learning to deal with contingencies. Right. Um, but I would say also that, um, you know, you try not to have um, surprises along the way, um, but being surprised along the way is very helpful and helps you grow and makes you introspect and think about um, contingencies that you may not have seen. Um, or, or your teammates, you know, having great communications with them can help you see things that are important to understand. Because you know what, even if those surprises don't happen, um, in the end, it makes you better as a team and uh, with respect to patients and doctors. So oh. if you're trying harder and working harder and trying to make sure you're covering all the bases, um, I think that can be really important. Without a doubt. And I mean, I have always called that scenario planning and in working with leaders, you know, suggesting that they take the time. It's an extra step. It's, and again, it's not something that everyone is thinking is real important because they're rushing to the finish line. But in the end, if that surprise does come and you've done a scenario around it, first of all, you're going to see it quicker. Second of all, you're going to have a checklist of what to do, and you're going to have a much better chance of surviving it and staying on track to the finish line. So I give you a, a ton of credit, Dave, for, you know, bringing that out to our listeners that, you know, that 
is probably the difference between um, you know, a successful launch and, you know, maybe, maybe a, a, a stall launch, right? Something that get, gets hung up for three months when in reality, maybe that didn't have to happen. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with that. And, you know, as you're speaking, Donna, I, you know, it struck me, it's certainly doing that type of planning and thinking broadly and communicating broadly and talking to a lot of different people in a lot of different areas about what might happen makes you a better team. And when you have a team like that, and a team that has developed the trust to be able to speak freely about the crazy things that, um, that might affect what they're planning to do, it makes you much more flexible and resilient in the marketplace. And so when those crazy things happen, which they inevitably will do, you just don't know when, as a team, number one, you're okay with that because you know your team culture is, hey, we can we can work with that. That's okay. And second of all, you know, people aren't freaking out and running around. Um, they're saying, you know what, we do have some plans for this. And you know, even though it may have only been a 10% chance in our scenario planning, we have a good idea. We're together, we know exactly. what we need to do, and we're going to move forward as one quickly, as you said. Exactly. And, you know, Dave, I heard you tell a story one time about a couple of teams that you had been on and and what it was about that team that made all of the things you're describing now possible. And I'm not sure that everyone has has been on a team like that, just like, you know, a lot of people play sports, but, you know, a small percentage have actually say won a championship. Right. So can you help us to understand what is it that got you to that pinnacle with coworkers where that team was poised to, to go to the very top. Right. Uh, you know, I've been in, in the period of over 40 years of, of my working career. Um, I've been on a few great teams and you always know when you've been on a great team. Now, of course, you know, if you ask a room full of people, have you ever been on a great, great team? Everybody raises their hand and looks at their boss who's sitting next yep. to them. But I can say, you know, I can say, um, I don't know, 50, 100 different teams I've been on. I think there were three great teams that I was on. And, you know, you cherish that, you know, you look back and, you know, you're friends with these people for, for years and for decades. And after you retire, they're still your friends and you're still communicating with them. And what is it about um, uh, that particular team or, or set of teams that um, that is common? I would say, number one, it starts with the leader, right? So um, if I was a director of marketing, it would be our boss, the vice president of marketing, right? Who set the tone and set the pace for how we would interact. And that is so important. You know, we talked about culture earlier, um, you know, and, and you know, you're, how do you know when you're on a great team? It's when you can turn to anybody on the team and say anything that needs to be said, anything, anyone, <laughs> about anything, whether it's personal, whether it's a group thing, whether it's a fear about what's going on, whether it's keep what's keeping you up at night, but there's no fear of reprisal. There's acceptance and trust, right? Exactly. I always thought of it as when we were in those crazy situations where we had to do something that um, even our wildest contingencies hadn't quite planned for, I always thought of it as, hey, I'm in a group of eight or 10 people here. We're, we see each other every day. We spend a lot of hours together. And if I was on a mountain and I was on a <laughs> rope 
and I needed to trust this person, I would trust them with my, you know, with everything, with my life. And that is such a great feeling. And that, when you have that feeling where you can look at, you look left, you look right, you don't worry if anybody's behind you because you know they're going to catch you if you fall. And everybody proactively does that to help each other. And that trust, right, that comes with being able to have those frank and open and um, productive conversations, that does not come easy, right? You hear people talk about it all the time, Donna, you know. Hard earned uh, for sure. That's right. That's right. And but when you have it, you know it. And it is just the best feeling because you know that you've got their back and they've got your back. Exactly. I call that concept relatedness. And on a scale of one to 10, if you can say anything, like you said, without judgment, then and be heard without judgment, then then you can really trust that individual and trust them enough to know that if you're about to make a mistake, they're gonna tell you, they're gonna help you out of your blind spot. And, and that really is, I think, what all people are looking for in terms of fulfillment, fulfillment in the world of work, right? So I feel like this is a great time to take a look at how professional networking and, uh, personal and professional development can prepare individuals for seeking, you know, the holy grail of the career, right? Which is, which is that team that you could just fall backwards and know they'll catch you. What are your thoughts on networking and, and how do you think it's changed since the time that you were building your career? <laughs> it's almost an embarrassing question for me to answer <laughs> because the year I came out of graduate school getting my MBA was the year the IBM PC came out right so oh boy. <laughs> imagine imagine a world right so this is this ages me imagine a world without the internet without cell phones without computers right imagine that world where you had you had snail mail and telephones that you would dial um, and that was the world that I, I originally came from. So there's just so many tools available today, which are fantastic. Right. But, you know, I'm just going to go back for a minute to culture and the role that culture plays in that, too. You know, when I was growing up, um, I was told by my father very distinctly, you know, my dad um, is Chinese um, and he was born and raised in China and his teachings were. Um, strong-willed and had quite an effect on me. And what I learned growing up and was told many, many, many times is don't talk about yourself. That was a cultural aspect coming from him that I inculcated, right? So it was wrong and it was bad and it was um, in poor taste to ever talk about yourself you know, which was perceived as bragging, you know, whenever right. you talked about yourself, it was perceived as bragging. The dirty so, word bragging. <laughs> right, right. And so that was something, you know, I took to heart, right? And, and, you know, it's a, it's a good lesson. But as you move forward, I always, I always had, oh, such a problem writing my resume, right? And so especially preparing a resume in advance, right? So you would hear, you know, I heard through my careers, I went through the, you know, the 80s and the 90s, <laughs> the early 2000s, you know, always have a resume ready to go, right? Because you never know when there may be an opportunity. And I struggled with that idea because a resume is the ultimate vision of talking about yourself. 
Exactly. Right? And then comes the tools, then comes the internet, then comes, you know, the digital exchange, all the methods of social and everything. And I had, you know, uh, participated in, in things like LinkedIn, right? So um, before I joined in my last um, corporate position, I had joined LinkedIn, but I think I had 39 contacts, right? 39 <laughs> contacts. And, and I limited myself. I said, you know, um, it's got to be somebody I know. I know personally. They know me. We're on first name basis. We can call each other up. And I learned, let me tell you, I learned a lot over the last, uh, you know, few years. You know, my time at Merck was, I was there for seven years. I have thousands of contacts now. Most of them I know directly, you know, and they know me. Um, and it, that was just something that I hadn't put in my toolkit um, because not only can it help me, you know, selfishly, right? But I, I've given into that. That's okay to be a little selfish about yourself. But I can help a lot of other people too exactly. um, that are looking for help to network them, to introduce them to people, to have someone trusted to, to speak with. So um, that's been a real pleasure for me to, um, to get with it, so to speak, and really understand how the networking in, the, in today's age can just be so important and so helpful. I like I like starting really at the beginning as you did, um, you know, to talk about those hard earned trusting relationships and also maybe just not like blanket and randomly connecting with people, but to have it be meaningful and and make sure that there's some give and take there. Right. There's some exchange. You're helping someone else someone else wants to help you or pay that forward. But it makes me wonder, you know, you can't do that in a month, right? You can't go from 39 connections to over 500. <laughs> so like, why is it that you think people put off the preparation, you know, to, to always be ready? One thing I found um, in, the, in the number, you know, there were numerous times in my career where either I left the job or the job left me, right? Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> to be polite about it. And in each of those cases, I, I found that I had not prepared the way that we're talking about enough, <laughs> whether it would be with having an updated resume or having networks and contact lists, um, you know, and part of that was cultural. But also I think people, as we discussed a little earlier, get comfortable in their positions, right? Um, For sure. And especially, you know, when I started working in the early 80s, there was that old thought, I, gosh, it, you know, it, it seems incredible to me now, but there was the thought that, hey, you could have a career and what is a quote unquote career? That's really where either in your first or second job, you spend the rest of your life working for that one company. I mean, imagine that, right? Imagine that philosophy. And as a matter of fact, you know, there was a lot of stigma attached with leaving a company, whether you left right. them or they left you in the, all through the 80s, all through the 80s. Now, fast forward to today, where it's great, you know, if you start your career and you have two or three experiences in the first couple of years you're working, you know, that that's fantastic. And that's really a much more healthy way of looking at the development of skills, etc. Um, I, I, I think people hesitate, number one, because they the aspect of working, and it is work to work on yourself, right? But that aspect of working puts you into a discomfort zone that says, maybe you won't be at this job that you love, 
Maybe something will happen that's out of your control. Um, exactly. Maybe um, for some reason that you just can't anticipate or don't want to anticipate, something will change, which will make it necessary for you to put yourself out there in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. And, you know, the only way to get around that is to put yourself out there and make that level of discomfort become something of at least somewhat comforting because you know now you've planned for the future. It can never hurt to have an updated resume. You never know when you're gonna get that call where there's this great right. opportunity, but they need your resume this afternoon because they right, know the person right. who's hiring and the closing date is tomorrow, right? So there's nothing, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I love that statement. People would say, Dave, what's the worst that can happen? And so to look at it in that way and see that as being something that you've checked off your list and you're prepared, you've got contacts, you've got um, uh, uh, following, you're following right. people you know, it's, it's something that can really work out well for you in the end. Well, I think it's the personal version of business scenario planning. If you don't do it and nothing bad happens, it's all good, right? And if you do do it and something happens and you need the plan, you know, then you're ready. So it's, it's about going the extra mile in it, in the thought process of, I may or may not need this type of support. So the person that's really out there that's really going above and beyond is doing the scenario planning and is also doing the career planning. And I like when you said, you know, the job left me, right? This happens every single day. And it, it obviously it's landing as a negative experience. So, you know, from, from when this has happened to you, Dave, what do you think people can learn from an experience like that? And, um, and why does that then become an essential tool in building the career? Great question. I mean, um, during the course of your career, you're either going to put yourself out of your comfort zone or someone else is going to do that to you, right? Sometimes good, building new skill sets, uh, learning fantastic new stuff on the job, sometimes not as good in the perception of the overall marketplace where you know, you're in a position where it's really important for you to find something else that suits you better. Um, uh, you know, it's funny you say that. I remember my dad saying to me a couple of times during my career, he goes, what, Dave, what's your backup plan? And I was confused and it, it made me a little bit mad, you know, that my dad right. even assumed that I would need a back. Why would I need a backup plan with everything that's going on? And he said, it was a very simple question. And he kept asking it, you know, even yeah. though he knew that, um, uh, you know, it wasn't going to make me happy. But I, I think having that quote unquote backup plan is essential. Exactly. So, so, you know, my wife, it's funny, you know, a couple of times my job left me when my wife was um, pregnant, right? So um, twice we moved um, across the country when my wife was eight months pregnant. And thank God for her support along the way because she was not real happy with me that any of this happens. <laughs> and, and when that happens, it really makes you think about what's important and what's important to prepare for and why a backup plan can be important. So, you know, you're in this situation where you're going through some, uh, you know, what you consider to be life crisis, you know, moving, having a change as far as the size of your family, starting a new job, you know, the stress of looking for a new job, all of that is extremely stressful. But one thing that I learned, my wife found this little magnet in a store, which she stuck on the fridge 
in the days where fridges had uh, magnetic capabilities <laughs> that said, if you're going through hell, just keep going, right? <laughs> and that was something, I mean, I love that. At first, I didn't understand it, but I came to know what that meant. And I, we, I would loan that out to people that needed it, make them promise to return <laughs> it to me and take it off their fridge. Because you know what? One thing I found that you have to have the faith in this Every single time I went from what I considered a bad experience as far as the job leaving me turned into something so wonderful afterwards right. that I could have never imagined. My career, Donna, progressed over <laughs> and over again when I went through those experiences of change and just having the faith and knowing as I got later in my career that any change like that um, would make me work harder and have greater right. success and look for something that I hadn't had before. It was just, it, it was wonderful. You know, I would have never had the experiences um, in pharmaceuticals that I had. I, I lost my job at that medical advice company and that's how I came into pharmaceuticals. It's, it's incredible. And those wise words often do come from parents um, <laughs> turn out to be uh, pretty spot on. Imagine, imagine that. <laughs> and I also think even, you know, coming from you, Dave, today in our conversation, um, there have been a couple of, of things that I made note of. And I just want to, you know, encapsulate it for our listeners that if there's if there's a list of things to expect in a career, according to Dave Chen, expect change, expect success, expect surprises and expect to be uncomfortable right and i would add one more that that's very accurate you're you're a good note taker but there's also expect to be true to yourself right perfect remain grounded in who you are and who you want to be it can be that aspirational who i want to be which is i think really important because you can always get better and evolve uh, and the aspect of continuous improvement, if you accept that can always make you better. But as you move through your career now, as I look at um, you know, over 40 years in the working world, I always really thought about who I was and whether or not I needed to do something different in my career so that I could remain true to myself and maintain yeah. the integrity that I felt I needed to have as a person and as a professional working at a, at a given position. Exactly correct. And I, I mean, I always hear people say a career is very rarely a straight line. And so I just appreciate the conversation around the bumps and the turns and the twists. I mean, you know, people don't often want to talk about that. You know, they want to look at the successes, but I think that that's where the value is for our listeners to understand that some of the things that they may be personally experiencing, you know, have happened to even the most successful pharmaceutical executives. And so I really do. I thank you for coming to the podcast, Dave. And um, it's been really great hearing from you. Thank you, Donna. You know, um, it's, it's been so much fun speaking with you today. And again, just remembering and understanding that any career is a journey. And I would have never imagined that I would end up where I ended up doing what I was doing. And you've got to enjoy that journey along the way. Um, and there's different steps you take along that journey. Just recognize them as the steps that you're taking to get to the next spot in your career. Super. Thanks again. Thank you, Donna.
This has been the evocative exchange that explores people and businesses that have that X factor that keeps you inspired and focused on what's possible.